According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me this morning once again in Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22, we're dealing with Abraham and his faith, his sacrifice of Isaac, or his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. We keep approaching that altar and, and uh, discussing the, the faith that Abraham had, his willingness. We already have spoiled the, uh, the ending. We know that he does not kill his son, that a substitute is provided in his place. And some of these doctrines then are going to be important for us to solidify to make sure that we can testify ourselves to the penal substitutionary atonement that we have enjoyed by virtue of being saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So this is a, it's a marvelous chapter, and it's not just, uh, you know, some people uh, will dismiss the Old Testament or they think it's, it's just children's stories or it's, it's for Sunday school. Uh, they want to get into the, the Pauline doctrines and the theology of the New Testament, and I'm sorry, this is as deeply theological as you can get right here, and, uh, and we, better, uh, we better pay attention because this is for our edification here today. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Before we look at our first verse, let's take a moment for silent prayer, making sure that each believer priest is equipped to handle the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning just so thankful. So thankful, Father, because we don't deserve this. Who are we? that we should enter into your counsel? Who are we that we should stand before your glory? And yet, Father, in Christ we have standing. And we stand before you. We have every right to be here. We are welcome. We are embraced. And Father, I just thank you for the, the access that we have in Christ, the nearness that we have in Christ. I thank you for the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit that uh, leads us into all things, even the deep things of God. So as we study to show ourselves approved, Father, we ask for your faithfulness once again to open our eyes, open our ears, and soften our hearts. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so we understand his instructions. We understand that he is going to the land of Moriah in order to sacrifice his son. This uh, I don't want to repeat what we've done the last couple of Sundays here, but as he calls to Abraham and he says, Abraham, here I am, take now your son... Your only son, that is your unique son, your one-of-a-kind son, the son whom you love, Isaac. So he's given four iterations, four uh, staggered uh, descriptions. Your son, your only son, the son whom you love, Isaac. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. That, that Yahweh, the Lord God, is commanding Abraham to perform a child sacrifice, to perform a human sacrifice. There's no other way to understand the instructions. So Abraham arose early. Now, for the reader, we're bailed out because in verse 1 we're told that uh, after these things that God tested Abraham. So the reader actually has a clue. You and I can relax a little bit that we're not going to freak out over how, how could Yahweh command child sacrifice? How could he command a human sacrifice when such a thing is abhorrent to, uh, to his nature? Well, the reader is, is tipped off to the fact that this is a test. Abraham, though, is not tipped off to the fact that this is a test. Abraham is just commanded, go to Moriah and sacrifice your son. So Abraham arose early in the morning and he saddled his donkey and he took two of his young men with him. 
and uh, wasn't instructed to do that, wasn't told to take a donkey or take two young men. Uh, but these are, this is just his way of obeying. These are the steps he's taking in his own obedience. And he uh, split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. This third day, again, we, we, I talked about this last week, the biblical significance of three days. We understand that Jonah was in the fish for three days, that Jesus was in the grave for three days. And for three days, Abraham is traveling to Moriah under the understanding and belief by faith that his son is dead, that he is going to sacrifice his son. And for three days, he has to believe that his son is actually going to die until the substitute is provided. And that, too, is a, is a uh, faith testimony of Abraham when he says the Lord will provide. The Lord himself will provide a lamb. And we'll get to that here this morning. So the third day does carry tremendous uh, typical, typological significance. I would encourage you, if you've never studied typology, the types of Scripture are very instructive and very helpful for us in understanding the, uh, the recorded prophecies. Abraham's vision from a distance proves to be a faith victory rather than the previous test that he's faced. Remember when he was approaching Egypt is when he got cold feet. That as he was approaching Egypt is where he lost his faith and he got scared. And he he got Sarah to agree to telling the lies that they told once they got to Egypt. That is on the approach is when he suffered his faith. You know, I think that's a, that's a good lesson for all of us. We can, we can start off with good in, intentions, but then as soon as we get close enough to actually see the, uh, the engagement or see the, the thing we're dealing with once we get there, oh, wait a minute, you know. And, uh, but on this occasion, he set out with everything he needed, and as he, as he got within sight of it, he just uh, strengthened his faith all the more. And so on the third day, he raised his eyes and he saw the place from a distance. And so he says to the young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go over there. So this is private work that he has to do. This is work that father and son have to do together. And that the servants are not appropriate for this. The donkey is not appropriate for this. This is work of the begetter and the begotten one. And the typology of what the father and son represent as what Abraham and Isaac represent is, uh, is critical. So, I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship. The obedience of God is worship. Don't think of worship as as the actual ritual itself. It's obedience. And uh, any ritual that has to have reality, we understand that. We will worship, and we will return to you. And that's a a bold statement to talk about what we're going to do after I'm finished killing him. All right. After I'm finished offering him up as a whole burnt offering. And I kind of thought about it. I thought that, hey, this would be a good chance to go to Leviticus, get all the gory details and all the instructions, everything that goes into a whole burnt offering. And then I thought, well, wait a minute, it's potluck Sunday. Maybe we we don't need all the bloodthirsty gore right before we uh, right before we have our meal. So we'll, we'll spare you on that here this morning. But this is what he's prepared to do. We will go up and we will worship. And I like this. This is uh, marvelous. Now, this statement, we will worship and we will return, that conveys a tremendous faith regarding post-mortem activity. And I phrased it that way for a reason. It conveys a tremendous faith regarding post-mortem, that means death, physical death, mortality, 
post-mortem activity. And this is useful for us, and there's a parallel for this with respect to Jesus. But Abraham has every intention of going through with what he was commanded to do. And then after that, he's going to continue obeying the Lord. And he's going to continue to serve, and so will Isaac. Now, how's that going to happen? He doesn't know. Unless maybe he dies and then God brings him back to life. He might suspect that's the case. And Hebrews 11 says that was on his mind at the time. That he considered that God is able to bring back the dead. And if God is able to bring back the dead, then just because Abraham is going to kill Isaac doesn't mean Isaac's going to stay dead. That after this worship is done, there's going to be more work to do. Why does he believe that? Why does he have any faith that, that Isaac's not done yet serving the Lord? It's because of the seed of Abraham promise. It's because of the covenant promise. It's because all of those eternal promises to Abraham have now been vested in Isaac, and Isaac doesn't have a child yet. If Isaac dies today and stays dead, then how do those other promises get fulfilled? All right? And I think this is a marvelous statement of faith. And it's finally a surrender on Abraham's part that he is going to stop trying to help God keep his promises. That he's just going to do what God tells him to do and then leave it to God to fulfill his own promises. God does not need our help keeping his promises. Right? That's what Hagar was all about. That's why he made a baby with Ishmael, trying to help God keep his promises. Every time we do that, we just make a bigger mess of things. We just stop trying to help God keep his promises. You know, in a lot of ways, I think this is what the Calvinists are doing. This is what the Armenians are doing. Working hard to try to stay saved. Working hard to prove that they're of the elect. All right? Just let God keep his promises. God promised to hold us securely and raise us up on the last day. I think this statement is, uh, is interesting, and it's one of the things that maybe doesn't hit you right at first until you stop and say, oh, wait a minute, what's that about? Okay? It's like when you're reading in Daniel 9 and you read about 77s and there's a prophecy there, and then you read about after the 69th 7, and then it crosses your mind and says, wait a minute, that's not during the 70th, that's after the 69th, but the 70th hasn't started yet. And then one of those things that says, wait a minute, there's a, there's a period of time in between here. And so you read about, we're going to go up there and we're going to come back. And then it dawns on you, wait a minute, how is he going to come back if he's dead? But he has every, every uh, belief, every faith assertion that Isaac is also coming back. That they're both going up the mountain and they're both coming back down the mountain, as it were. And this I find to be uh, rather, again, typology. I find this to be typological of the faith confidence that Jesus has when he goes and he dies on the cross. And we have a tremendous prophecy of that in Psalm 22 that I want to share with you here this morning. And uh, not that I could read the whole chapter, I guess. It's um, Psalm 22 is a Davidic psalm. Are you familiar with it? Say, of course we're familiar with it. We did through the Bible two years ago. We did every psalm. We know Psalm 22, all right? It is a psalm of David, and it is a description of the cross of Jesus Christ 1,000 years ahead of time. 1,000 years ahead of time. And David experiences this in the first person. You know, a lot of prophecies are in the third person, and, and prophets will see visions, and they'll see them from a third person perspective. 
David sees the cross from the first person perspective. His, his vision on the cross is hanging on the cross with his hands and his feet being pierced and with the enemies surrounding him and mocking him. And so David cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus quotes this when he's on the cross. These are David's words in his vision and these are Jesus' words on the cross. Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Now, the Gospels don't record it. The Gospels only record Jesus reciting verse 1. My belief is, I, I, I'm convinced, why, why would he stop there? Why would Jesus not recite from memory the totality of this psalm? Because the lower verses are where his confidence come in and where his worship comes in. I believe, I believe Jesus on the cross quoted the whole thing top to bottom. I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. We don't know how long David hung on his cross, okay? Now, don't get me wrong. It wasn't a literal cross David hung on, okay? He was either in a dream, or he was in a vision, or somehow he saw this experience that he didn't have in his physical body. King David was not physically crucified ever. But he sees this vision. It's another thing that makes it so miraculous, because crucifixion as an as a execution uh, method had not even been invented yet in 1000 B.C. when David is, is, uh, is writing Psalm 22. I, cr- I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night I have no rest. We don't know how long day and night that David stood there and endured that and saw these visions. We just don't know. For Jesus, it was six hours, but it was both day and night because the earth was shrouded in darkness during the three hours that, that sin was being judged. On, uh, on our Savior. Yet you are holy. This is what keeps a, uh, this is what keeps a, lament, a, a lament and keeps it from being turned into a grumbling. Okay? Because a grumbling will get you judged very quickly. But a lament is always mindful of the faithfulness of God and always giving glory to God in doing what He's doing. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered, and you they trusted and were not disappointed. In fact, that's another, pro- another promise from the Psalms. The, the believer who trusts in the Lord will never be disappointed. It has not happened ever, not once. Has anyone at the end of their life ever looked back and said, you know, I really regret trusting the Lord? It never happens. Our fathers, remember who are the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the tribal fathers of, of Israel, they trusted and you delivered them. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man. Again, these are the words of David, 1000 BC. These are the words of Jesus on the cross. A reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying... Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. Think about all this mocking. And David experienced it. His own brothers would mock him. Uh, He had several, uh, of course, Philistine enemies. He had other Gentile enemies. He even had Jewish enemies early on uh, when the house of Saul was hostile to him. But these very words are the words of Christ on the cross and the words of His crucifiers, the, the Romans and the, and the Jewish religious leaders and the crowd that was there taunting Jesus to come off the cross. 
taunting Jesus, saying, commit yourself to the Lord. You know, why isn't the Lord getting you off that cross? Let Him deliver Him. Why isn't your God saving you? Let Him rescue Him, because He delights in Him. Doesn't God love you? If the Father loved you, He wouldn't put you on that cross. You should come off that cross. And I think a lot of this taunting part of it, obviously, is when Scripture starts to dawn on Satan. See, Satan knows these verses. He's known them for a thousand years. But then he puts Jesus on the cross, and then the, the, the full doctrine of the understanding of this starts to... I think a little light bulb was coming on in his, the back of his satanic mind, saying, wait a minute. This was too easy. He voluntarily went up there. Maybe, uh, maybe this is a mistake. Let's, let's get him off of there. David continues. Jesus continues. You know, when the testing gets rough, what are you going to do? Stop now? Just keep trusting. Keep waiting. Rest by faith. Yet you are He who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Think about it. What a blessing. This is true for David. You know, we don't even know his mother's name. Uh, we know Jesse, and I guess Mrs. Jesse, uh, whoever the, the mother of those seven boys were. Um, and then Jesus, of course. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Uh, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bowls have surrounded me. Strong bowls of Bashan have encircled me. Let me just highlight one other thing here. There is none to help. Jesus was on the cross, and even though He was in between two thieves, they weren't helping Him in the work that He had to do on His cross. Okay? There was no spiritual work being done by those other thieves on the left and the right. The only spiritual work that was being done was the blood work of Jesus Christ. That it was His sacrifice. It was His priestly ministry on that cross. No one else could do that work. No one else could take His place. We're going to see the ram caught in the thicket was the substitute for Isaac. Isaac doesn't have to die because God provides the substitute in his place. But there is no substitute in Jesus' place. Because he is the substitute in everybody's place, in all of our place. He is the one and only. And there can be no alternative to Jesus. So when he says there is none to help, there's a lot of theology in that verse. Many bowls have surrounded me. Strong bowls of Bashan have encircled me. Bashan is, uh, there's angelic terminology here as we understand both earthly geography and angelic geography. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melting within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Again, not even invented. The Persians invented some of the early forms and then the Romans perfected it in, uh, in their day. I can count all my bones. You see, the, the, the Persians tried a lot of different things. Puncturing this, puncturing that, uh, hanging people on stakes. Oh, I forgot. Lunchtime. I'm not going to go into the gore. But the, the Romans really perfected it because they found ways to make it more painful and to last longer, to prolong the dying experience. Piercing my hands and my feet. The fact that those words show up a thousand years B.C. is, is 
miraculous in my mind. Part of the apologetic arguments you can make with people who don't think the Bible is real. I can count on my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sometimes the skeptics will accuse uh, the disciples and say, well, they had the Old Testament, so they just acted out everything they could trying to replicate what they read about, and they were artificially fulfilling prophecies. Uh, the disciples were just phony about trying to fulfill everything they could. Well, these aren't, the fair, these aren't the disciples here. These are the Romans. These are the soldiers. These are the religious leaders. These are the, the enemies of Christ that are crucifying him. They're the ones that are dividing his garments. They're the ones casting lots. Are, do they have an interest in trying to fulfill prophecy? Are they trying to artificially make good on Psalm 22? Of course not. They're probably clueless of Psalm 22. But they know. But David knew about the divided garments. But you, O Lord, be not far off. You be my help. Hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. He has to stay alive in his physical life, his soul life, his spirit life. In fact, uh, if, what, would, what would have happened if the Romans had succeeded in killing him before the cross? When they were scourging him, when they were whipping him, and all, he had to stay alive long enough to do the priestly work that he did on the cross. Save me from my lion, the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild ox, and you answer me. All right. Now we get, I read all of that to get to verse 22. Psalm 22, 22. I will tell of your name to my brethren. When are you going to do that? Okay. I mean, he, he's making post-mortem plans here is what Jesus is doing, what David is doing. Notice you have this whole crucifixion experience in 1 through 21. And then he turns it to an item of praise in verses 22 and following. He says, as soon as I'm done with this work assignment, I've got more work to be, do, to be doing. And what I'm going to do next is I'm going to go to you and I'm going to praise your name. I will tell of your name to my brethren. So he's going to have a human witness to his brethren, to the, the Jewish people in, in the dispensation of Israel. And he will. He's going to have a 40-day resurrection ministry uh, with his disciples, with Israel, before he ascends. And then he says, in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. I take that as the heavenly assembly. Others do different things with that. But from the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. I believe he's going to have a, an earthly witness to the Jewish people. He's going to have a heavenly witness to, uh, to the angels above. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel, the seed of Israel. But notice, what is this? This is post-mortem planning. This is what he intends to do when he's finished with what he has to do on the cross. I will tell of your name to my brethren. Think about it. The, the brethren that rejected him, the brethren that crucified him, the brethren that hated him, the brethren that said, we have no king but Caesar. And he prays for them. He says, Father, they know not what they do. Hold this, do not hold this sin against them. They, they rejected him before the cross, but he's going to come back in resurrection for 40 days. He's going to keep testifying. I will tell of your name to my brethren. And so this is interesting. And, and I think here's a pattern. And I, and I like this language. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. This, this, is, this is the faith that Abraham is expressing when he says, we will go up there and worship and we will come back. He's making plans for what he and Isaac are going to do 
after the sacrifice of Isaac. It's an incredible faith, a tremendous faith. Okay? Stand in awe of him, you seed of Israel, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. There's a whole lot more here, too. Um, I'm going to let this go, but because there's other things I want to get to with this. Yeah, I'm going to let this go. Read all of Psalm 22, top to bottom. And, and just remind yourself every verse that it's not Jesus. I mean, it is. But it's David first. It's David first. And what he experienced and what he saw, what he wrote about. And then Jesus secondly, as the prophetic fulfillment of this prophetic message. Tremendous faith. All right. I and the lad will go over there. We will worship. We will return to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering. He took the wood. He brought it with him. And he's bringing everything with him. Again, part of the obedience is full and complete obedience. He's not just going to assume that, uh, that he, can, he can obtain wood locally when he gets there. He's not sure. He knows the land, but he doesn't know the, the specific place. He makes the provision. He, t- he prepares the wood ahead of time and he takes it with him. Is that more work to do? Yes. Is it harder? Sure. But he wants to do it so that he can make sure he's in full obedience when he gets there. Also, the fire. Why is he bringing the fire with him? Why not just start a new fire when you get there? He's bringing the fire with him as well. So he took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. I think that's pretty much a clue that his son's not a two-year-old at this point. Okay. He's not, we don't know how young he is. We don't know how old he is. There are legends and traditions all the way up to Fruchtenbaum thinks he's 30. Thinks that he's 30 years old as a, as a complete type of Christ. And, and uh, Christ was 30 when he was baptized. Um, he would have been three and a half years later when he was crucified. I don't think he was that old. Um, but whatever he is, he's old enough to uh, carry wood and he's old enough to ask questions. He's old enough to understand what a burnt offering actually is. Takes the wood and lays it on Isaac, his son, just like Jesus carries his own cross. The willingness of the son to carry the cross. The willingness of Isaac to carry the wood. And then Abraham takes the knife in his hand and he takes the fire and the knife, we're told. So the two of them walked on together. Think about that. Think about do two walk together. There are Proverbs that address do two walk together. And here they are. And then Isaac with his question. This is Isaac's capacity for volitional participation. Isaac's capacity. Again, I'm pegging his age here. He's old enough to understand. He's old enough to process. He's old enough to see a problem with what he thinks his father is doing. The problem is you don't have the animal. Where's the lamb? You brought the wood, you brought the knife, you brought the fire. Where's the lamb? Why did you not bring a lamb? Abraham has, he's, he's the wealthiest, wealthiest man in the world. He's got flocks, he's got herds, he's got sheep for days. Why did he not bring a lamb? It seems, it seems intentional that he did not bring a lamb. So Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, 
He said, here I am, my son. Again, that's the address. That's the call and response. Just like when the Lord said, Abraham, Hanini, here I am, my son. Isaac says, my father. He says, Hanini, here I am, my son. I have to wonder, does, does the father tell us this when we say, dear Heavenly Father, we go to him in prayer? We go to the father in prayer and we say, Abba, Father. Does the father in heaven say, Hanini, I'm here. What do you need? I love that. Just the imagery of that is beautiful. And so Isaac said, Behold, now see this. It's a command, it's an imperative to see. Behold, the fire and the wood. Are you looking at what I'm looking at? <laughs> Isaac has a problem. See, he's processing the information and he sees a deficiency. And so he has a question for his father because his father has to see what he's seen. There's obviously something he's not clued into and he wants to know. Now, this is, in my mind, this is a vital principle that we have to recognize. It's called the, the, the principle of volitional participation. That is, our service to God has to be from our own free will. It can't be grudgingly. It can't be under compulsion. Because God loves the cheerful giver. It also has to be fully informed consent. That, my friends, is a biblical phrase. That's not a political statement. I'm not talking about uh, you know, vaccines from five years ago. I'm talking about fully informed consent, biblically, to the will of God, in what it is the Father's expecting us to do. It's not blind faith. It's not mindless obedience. But it is fully informed consent. And this is our first illustration. There are many throughout the Scriptures. So he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? That's a question that needs an answer. And the answer Abraham provides is adequate for Isaac's fully informed consent. Because it's based upon all the information that, I, that Abraham himself has available. Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb. God will provide Himself the Lamb. Which in Hebrew can be taken two different ways, and I'll be touching on that also. God will provide. God will provide. God will see to it. The verb of provision is, is, a, is a verb of seeing. If you're going to see to something, then you're providing for it. Okay? God will see to it. God will provide. Himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so in this statement, there are some marvelous things. Do we, Abraham doesn't know the how. He doesn't know the where. He probably knows the why, but maybe not even then. Okay? He still has an assumption, perhaps, that he's going to kill Isaac and Isaac will be brought back to life. That might be the how. I don't think he dreams about a ram caught in the thicket. And that just turned out to be how God did it. I don't think Abraham anticipated that. He doesn't know the how. He doesn't know the details, the mechanics. He's, he's faith resting. And best of all, he's not trying to help. He's letting God make good on his own promises. And that answer is sufficient for the son. The son trusts the father. The son realizes that the, uh, the, we have the knowns and the unknowns. And you're leaving it with the Lord. And that is sufficient for the fully informed consent, as we're going to detail here shortly. So, 
We've, done, we've got the fire, we've got the wood, we've got the knife, we've got everything we need. God will provide the lamb. Let's do it. God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering of my son. So the two of them walked on together. That's repeated. They walked on together. They walked on together. I think this principle of fully informed consent is one that transcends dispensations. It was true in the Old Testament. It was true for uh, the Gentiles. It was true for the Jews. It's true for the church. It will continue to be true in the tribulation, in the millennium, and in the fullness of time. It will always be true. There will never be a time that God will be content, that God will be satisfied or pleased with having mindless people just obeying uh, without being told you know, uh, the basis for that obedience. All right. And right now I'm noticing a missing verse. That's okay. I'll plug it in there anyway. There's other, uh, there's other principles, right? So um, let's do, I want to do Philemon 14. I want to do Corinthians. Let's start with 2 Corinthians 9 4. 2 Corinthians 9 4. All right. You say, what in the world are we doing in 2 Corinthians? I thought this was a Genesis class. All right? There's a principle that's being illustrated with Abraham and Isaac, and that principle is explicitly declared through the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians. And so we're talking about grace giving. We're talking about service. And the Macedonians were ready. Paul was not quite so sure about the Corinthians. Okay? They were schismatic. They were carnal half the time. They were not always on board divine viewpoint. So he's cluing them in with this chapter. He says, I've sent brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, but so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. These brethren are going to arrive ahead of Paul and hopefully uh, remind the Corinthians about their previously promised gift. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, boy, is that going to be embarrassing. Okay? We will be put to shame, not to speak about you, will be even more put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren, they were going ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift. These are the principles where if you can handle the finances ahead of time, you do yourself a huge favor. Don't, don't wait till the last moment, and certainly don't wait until you, your guests have already arrived, your missionaries in town, and now, now there's a guilt trip or there's a pressure being applied, and he shows all the, the sad stories of, of starving children, Africans or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes missionary reports can be um, emotionally manipulative. Not here, of course, but in other, other venues. So what would we try to, we don't pass the plate, we don't guilt trip people. We, we arrange beforehand the previously promised bountiful gifts. And we're doing it as unto the Lord. So that nothing is affected by covetousness. And of course, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. And, and it's, how, it's not a have to, it's not tithing, it's not law. There's not an amount you have to give. It's open-ended to what do you want to give? How bountiful do you want to be in your love for the Lord and your blessing to the, uh, the missionary field that you're supporting? 
Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart. This is fully informed consent, volitional accountability. As he has purposed in his heart. This is your sovereignty of your will, of your volition. You stand in the image of God and it is your blessing to supply. You are giving because you want to. You're giving because you love. You're giving because as God's image bearer, God is a lover, God is a giver. And you want to reflect that in your love and your giving as unto the Lord. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. God hates those. God loves the cheerful giver. What is pleasing in God's sight? The volitional Fully informed consent, volitionally loving worship. God loves a cheerful giver. And on that basis, can you give too much? (laughs) No. On that basis, as you purposed in your heart, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed, This is the promise. You're not going to regret your grace gift. Okay? Because God makes all grace abound. If uh, I would suspect, (laughs) if you give something and and then you regret it the next day or a week later or a month later, I would suspect you might want to do some reflection and ask yourself if you gave it with the right attitude in the first place. Okay? Maybe you did. Maybe you didn't. Maybe things changed in the meantime. But there's some kind of reflection that has to take place because the... uh, the negative feelings you're feeling uh, with uh, the regret or the hindsight or whatever, um, that's a, you gotta you gotta give that to the Lord too. Say, Lord, this is wrong. I, I gotta get rid of this attitude. And God is able to make all grace abound, all grace, not just a lot of grace, all grace, so that always, not just most of the time, always having all sufficiency, not just most sufficiency, all sufficiency in everything, not just most things. In everything. You may have an abundance for a lot of the things you know. Every, every good deed. It's universal. Oh, it's powerful. All right, so go ahead and add um, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, which should be in here with Philemon 14 and Isaiah 53. All right, volitionally. Can't be grudgingly, can't be under compulsion. In the episode we're seeing today, Isaac cannot be dragged up that mountain by, by ropes. And, and he can't go up there grudgingly, and he can't go up there under compulsion. He has to be there volitionally. He has to, be, he has to walk side by side with his father, and he's carrying the wood himself. Volitionally. Jesus was volitionally going to his cross. And then, uh, without the uh, ignorance of... Um, withheld information without the fully informed consent. And this is where Philemon comes in. Philemon 14. Alright, different context, different book. But the principle that's being conveyed here applies to Isaac in Genesis 22 and it applies to Jesus on the cross. Alright, you're familiar with Philemon? Of course you are. We did it through the Bible two years ago. All right? You know Philemon. You know every chapter of this book. All right? 
Philemon, Paul is returning a runaway slave. A runaway slave that stole from Philemon. A runaway slave that, that uh, wronged uh, Philemon and his wife. And then fled. And then got saved. And now is being returned. Okay? And so Paul says, I have sent him back to you in person that is sending my very heart. He didn't want to do it. Emotionally, yeah, he and uh, Onesimus were, were... I mean, it's amazing how quickly you can, you can become attached to a person. But he leads Onesimus to Christ, and they are just immediately intimate in this spiritual way, sending my very heart, whom I wished to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. And that actually was a very common use for slaves in the, in the Old Testament or in the ancient world, even in the fairly recent times in the modern world. That uh, if there was uh, a labor that, that you didn't want to do, you could send your slave to do it instead. You could even send your slave to war and say, I'm not going to go fight in the war here. I'll sign him over. He'll fight in my name. Okay? It was one of those scenes in The Patriot I like. And Mel Gibson said, no, you, you make your own mark here. Even after the... The guy had already signed him over. Um, Paul, in getting Onesimus saved and then learning, oh, Philemon is your master? Philemon and Aphia and Colossae? Are you kidding me? Well, there's a coincidence. I know them. In fact, I led him to Christ two years ago. Can you imagine such a thing? Again, it's not, it's not Calvinist luck. It's, it's sovereignty. Okay? It's not a coincidence. It's the sovereignty of God that he, that he runs away and runs, encounters the Apostle Paul. So, um, it crossed his mind. He said, I could, I could just keep him. I, I could keep him. I don't have to return him. He can serve me. And really, Philemon kind of owes me anyway since I got him saved. You know, he should appreciate that. He should want to support my ministry. Don't you think? But here's the problem. Keeping him in the dark. Keeping him ignorant. So that he's uh, none the wiser. Right? You can't be none the wiser and give glory to God. Ignorance doesn't glorify him. Ignorance is, is, is agnosticism and it needs to be remedied. So Paul says, I wish to keep him with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. Good plan. But, without your consent. I'm here to tell you, this is, this is a principle. It's consistent with the cheerful giver principle of, of 2 Corinthians 9. It's consistent with uh, the sacrifice of Isaac. It's consistent with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Without your consent, I do not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion. Now notice the words in effect. Technically speaking, is it actually compulsion? Is it, is it technically compulsion if Philemon just doesn't know any better? That's not technically compulsion, but it might as well be. It's tantamount to compulsion. It's in effect compulsion. That teaches us something else about how much God dislikes compulsion. Because he dislikes literal compulsion, but he also dislikes tantamount to compulsion. 
He also dislikes that which is in effect compulsion. You see the difference? Neither one is acceptable in his mind. Neither one is, but meets the definition of divine good production. <coughs> in other words, your goodness. Your goodness. What is that? What is your goodness? I was traumatized as a child because every time I grew up, I mean, this is years and years and years of, of parental abuse. I'm joking, okay? But <clears throat> my father had certain verbal quirks, wherever he got those from. And one of the things he would always key on, if I dared to say the words, my goodness, right? Like, oh, my goodness, or goodness, my goodness. My dad was all over that, theologically, like you wouldn't believe. He'd say, you have no goodness. All your righteousness is filthy rags. There's only one who's good. All right? You have no goodness. Your goodness is irrelevant. You don't have any. It's God's goodness that is imputed to your account. And so I learned the doctrine of imputation and righteousness. And, and so I was scarred. And, and to this day... If, if, it, if those words escape my lips, I have to then chew myself out because my dad's in heaven. And I have to chew myself out. So I can't believe I said that. Oh, my goodness. I don't have any goodness. Okay? It's God's goodness. But what is Philemon's goodness? When Paul says, I did not want you to do, I did not want to do anything without your consent so that your goodness. It's a reference to divine good production. It's a reference to sacrifices and realms of service and fruit-bearing that born-again believers engage in voluntarily, not grudgingly under compulsion, and with a fully informed consent without any ignorance of what it's going to cost them. Jesus tells us, count the cost. Count the cost. Before you even start, count the cost. And then, if it's, uh, if it's something earthly compared to the heavenly fruit you're bearing, then count the cost and count it but rubbish. But count the cost first. Count the cost. Be willing to pay the price knowing the full cost of what it's going to be. And so without your consent, your goodness would be in effect by compulsion. So, another point whereby we see God does not love compulsion. God does not enjoy forcing people to do things. Just the opposite. Just the opposite. Okay. See, these are the principles that I don't... To me, part of the issues with Calvinism is, really, your God just loves forcing people to do things, including the sin that he forces them to do. Anyway. No, ours is a God who loves volition and fully informed consent. And before you decide you want to do this, you've got to know the whole price. You've got to know the whole price. You know, for Jesus, he had to do this. Isaiah 53. Do we know Isaiah 53? You're familiar with Isaiah 53? Yes. Why? Because he had to through the Bible. Yeah, there you go. You know Isaiah 53. You know it's the, the sacrifice of the Lamb. You know that it's the, the, the Lamb that was silent before his uh, shearers. Don't you just love this? Can you imagine the same message took us from Psalm 22 to Isaiah 53? How many times are we seeing the death of Jesus here this morning? 
Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. The coming Messiah was going to have a childhood. The coming Messiah was going to grow up and everybody was going to see him grow up. Like a root out of parched ground. And he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He wouldn't thrive in American politics. Okay? You've got to have all the hair and all the teeth and all the, all the great uh, show for, for the cameras and all the great... That wasn't him. All right? And he didn't come riding in on this stately horse like a conqueror. He was a babe in the manger wrapped in swaddling garments. And, uh, and as he grew, he had a tough childhood. He had a tough life. We don't know how soon after the age of 12 Joseph died, but we don't see Joseph again after Jesus at the age of 12. And at some point, Jesus became the man in the house. Started working, started raising, you know, his siblings. Those younger knuckleheads, all right? He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. That's the only description we have of Jesus Christ and his personal appearance. I realize all the artists in the Middle Ages made him very glamorous and attractive. and We don't know. They should have painted some ugly dude. And that would have matched verse 2 here. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He had a tough life. And that shows. You can see it in their face when, when you encounter somebody. They've had a rough life. Like one from whom men hide their face, and he was despised, and we did not esteem him. The one from whom men hide their face. You don't want to make eye contact. You don't want to, you don't want to just deal with them, right? No, no, I didn't see him. No, nope. don't talk to me. Despised. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Think of that when you think of Isaac carrying his firewood. Our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. There it is again. Now, this is not quite as old. Psalm 22 is 1000 BC. This is 700 BC still. Pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All right, now I've got some questions for you. He was pierced. That was on the cross. He was crushed. When was that? Gethsemane. There you go. Pierced and crushed. And until he had victory in Gethsemane, he was not qualified to go have his victory at Golgotha or Calvary. Pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. What's the crushing about? Continue. Uh, by his scour- uh, chasing for what being fell upon him by his scourging we are healed all of us like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to his own way that, you know raise your hand if you're in Adam you're a sinner you need a savior that's all of us that's all of us but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him God the Father imputed all of our sins unto the person of Jesus Christ and he vol- voluntarily volitionally accepted them He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. They kept trying to get him to say things and he wouldn't. That is different trials. 
Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, you know, the day and age in which he walked this earth, man, he came to his own and his own received him not. But he loved him to the end. His own generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. That he was cut off. They, they actually, this is what their hope was. Just put him to death and we're, we're, we're free. We're done. Our problems are solved. Now, Daniel said, Messiah the Prince will be cut off and have nothing. God has a plan for this. For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. And Isaiah knew it. Isaiah knew it. The Jewish people have, uh, not only are they the chosen people and the most blessed people, they're the most accountable people. And so they're also the most judged because of all of their violations and all of the, the wrath that has to come upon them. But Jesus is paying that price too. Not just our sins. Israel's national covenant breaking. All of their transgressions under the first covenant. The national offenses of Israel. Those are the transgressions of the Jewish people. That's, that's not you and me. That's not the church. His grave was assigned with a wicked man, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Here's Isaiah talking about Joseph of Arimathea and uh, prophesying these things that we learn about in the life of Christ. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased. Alright, now we're getting to why, again, volitional uh, capacity is absolutely vital. God takes no pleasure in compulsion. He takes no pleasure in tantamount compulsion so long as there's any ignorance at all. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. This is Gethsemane before the cross. This is the night prior. This is why He's qualified to be the justifier. And this is why the Father was satisfied under the doctrine of propitiation. The Father would not be satisfied if the Son had incomplete information. He had to know the totality of what that sin is that He was accepting the next day. And that involved being crushed in prayer in Gethsemane so crushed that he sweat great drops of blood, so crushed that it crossed his mind that he might just bail and not go to the cross. He might beg the Father for a substitute. Is it possible that this cross could pass by me? So the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. I don't believe there was grief on the cross, but there was a lot of grief in Gethsemane the night before if he would render himself a guilt offering. He has to know the cost. He has to count the cost. He has to know. He has to be given a... Uh, and he can't use omniscience, but he has to be given a human understanding, I believe through the Holy Spirit, teaching him what every sin is that he's about to accept the price for. If he would render himself a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. That Jesus has things to look forward to after the millennium, including offspring. The everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Jesus will have a father role 
after the millennium, in the thousand generations of the fullness of time. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of God the Father will prosper in his hand. When you're separating out Yahweh and, and the Lamb here, these Yahweh references are God the Father, and the Lamb is God the Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As a result of the anguish of his soul, again, this is victory at Gethsemane, victory in the garden, as a result of the anguish of his soul, then Jesus Christ now has the full awareness of the price he will pay the next day. God the Father will see it and be satisfied. He will be satisfied that the sinless lamb is now equipped to do the work. By his knowledge, this is what he learned, the knowledge he acquired through the anguish. Remember, he's not using omniscience. But the knowledge he acquired through the anguish. Do you and I, do we ever learn things through the anguish? You bet we do. Things that maybe we should have learned in Bible class, but we kind of were daydreaming and not paying attention. Okay? And then, oh! And then we go through testing. And then our faith is hammered. And then we're, we're crushed. And through the affliction of our testing, all of a sudden, the, uh, the academic doctrine that we learn now becomes so vivid and real. And you get, wait a minute. Now I know what he was talking about. There were probably 5,000 things that Ralph told me that it wasn't until Ralph retired. Ralph was the former pastor here that, that ordained me. And then after he retired and after I became pastor, and then, oh, the light bulb started coming on. That's what Ralph was talking about. All right, now I know. But you know through the anguish. You know through the suffering. You know through the grief. As a result of the anguish of his soul. And this is what we're going to study because when Abraham is willing to sacrifice Isaac and, and Yahweh says, stop, stop. He says, now I know. That's a different kind of knowing. That's knowing through the grief. That's knowing through the anguish. And whatever anguish Abraham had, whatever anguish Isaac had, and whatever anguish the father had putting Abraham and Isaac through that, he says, now I know. Now I know. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. So God the Son has sufficient anguish, sufficient knowledge. Right there it is. By his knowledge... The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Stop and ask yourself that. In fact, draw it out on paper if you need to. What qualified him to be the sacrifice? Well, he was sinless and perfect. Okay, But what qualified him to be the justifier? To justify the many. That's a different answer. To be the sacrifice, he had to be without spot or blemish. He had no sin. You know, he had to be the spotless lamb to be the sacrifice. But it's a whole different qualification set to be the justifier. And we're told it's by his knowledge, my servant will justify the many. As he will bear their iniquities. Until he gets that knowledge, 
in Gethsemane the night before, until he gets that knowledge, he's, he's qualified to be the, the sacrifice. He's not yet qualified to be the justifier until the victory at Gethsemane. Then he has the knowledge. Then he has the grief. Then he has, then he knows the cost. He has to know the cost ahead of time. The, the father can't let him be ignorant of the cost. What if, what if the son is ignorant and he gets one hour into the three hour, hours of darkness? What if he's one hour into the three hours of darkness, but he was ignorant ahead of time, and now it's starting to, he's starting to realize, wait a minute. <laughs> no one's going to be all this. I'm only one third through. He has to know ahead of time the total price to be paid. And this is true if you're building a tower or making a bridge or going to war or whatever else you're doing. The Bible teaches us to count the cost and be willing to pay that price. Count it a joy to pay that price. God loves the cheerful giver. So, by his knowledge, my righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So many of these. Can you imagine? How does a Jewish person read this and not get saved? <laughs> and not see Jesus? You know, there's none so blind as they will not see. And um, it is interesting. But for the most part, it's ignored. It's not included in their... Bible reading in their synagogue services. It's not. And, and the, uh, the rabbis are trained to try to refute this and answer this and ignore any Christian messages from this chapter. They've got an allegorical approach that, that, uh, that does to this what the, uh, what the preterists do to Revelation. <laughs> okay? Isn't that curious? All right. So we have Isaac's capacity for volitional participation illustrating the necessity for informed consent. And God will provide himself the lamb. And he is the lamb. And he provides it. And it's him. Okay? Jesus is the lamb of God. When he comes to be baptized at the River Jordan, what does John the Baptist say? He saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the lamb of God. And in what a, what a fulfillment to everything the Old Testament ever addresses. The Old Testament, you had dying animals again and again and again and again. Jesus comes once. Once and for all. All those animal rituals, they just covered for sin. Jesus takes away sin. And not just sins plural, but sin singular. The estate. The estate of Adam's original sin is removed in Christ. The sin singular of the cosmos. The Lamb of God. Likewise, verse 36. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. Why did they stick around? Why did they not switch schools yesterday? They should have said, okay, bye John, we're out of here. We're following the Lamb of God. But the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Well, these guys follow. Why, why did the other ones not follow? John eight fifty six. I'm curious about this. In John 8, there's a lot of conflict. 
Pharisees are attacking him. He's answering them back. He says, you're of your father, the devil. Some of the toughest words he ever delivers is here in John chapter 8. And um, hmm. they uh, say, you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? You're better than Abraham? You're better than all the prophets? Yeah. I'm the Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God. But it's interesting. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say He is our God. You say He's your God. Why are you not uh, celebrating whom the Father is glorifying? And you have not come to know Him, but I know Him. Remember when Nicodemus had to be born again? What do you think these guys need to do? They don't even know God. I know Him, and I say, if I say I don't know Him, I will be a liar like you. (laughs) Right? But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, I'm going to close in prayer here. We're going to go have a, a, a nice potluck meal. One of the things we can talk about while we're eating, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Was that in Genesis 22? When he walked up the hill with Isaac? When he was stopped from sacrificing the son? And as they walked back down the hill, at what point did he see the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Did he see the cross? Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. All right. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for truth. Thank you for the food, the abundant spiritual food, and shortly here, Father, the abundant physical food. And uh, looking forward to, uh, to that as well. And Father, uh, thank you for the hands that prepared. Thank you for all of the hospitality committee and, the, and the, the great team of servants that are serving you, not grudgingly or out of compulsion. They're serving you from their own free will. They love you, and uh, we thank you for such service. We give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.